Anyway, Exodus 29 tonight. Um, as you remember, we are going through this section that is about the, mainly about the tabernacle. Um, and I just want to remind you again, because it, it really shows up in this, in this passage tonight, that, that, that quote that I gave from uh, a commentator, a Jewish commentator named Sarna, that, that the tabernacle serves as a symbol of God's continued presence in the midst of Israel, and to accommodate the organized practice of religion. So both of those things are very much uh, in view tonight as we get to Exodus 29. Uh, and it'll seem like most of it is about, is about the practice of organized religion. Um, but it is all pointing to God's continued presence with the people of Israel. So God's presence is something that we think about, we, we talk about sometimes really, really, really superficially until we are in the midst of some kind of a struggle. Some of us that really have never had things go badly for us might, might never think of this, what it means to have God with us. Um, you know, we know things like, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us, and, and things like that that just seem, they're out there, but, but what do they, they mean? So, I don't know if any of you, you guys have heard of aha moments, right? So, um, aha moment is, is something that, you know, you've seen over and over again, probably, or it should be so plain that nobody could miss it, but you've missed it all these years. Um, and, and I had one of those this week, when I was doing my regular reading in in Genesis chapter thirty one about about the presence of God, um, and it is in the story of of Jacob as he goes and works for Laban and his father in law. You know the story. Uh, cheats him many times, changes his wages all the time, uh, but but he, but he stays around, and Laban is just blessed tremendously because. Because Jacob is there. Uh, and I came across this verse, and it's after God has told Jacob that it's time to go back to your land. Uh, and so he goes to tell his wives, you remember that story with uh, Rachel and Leah, he goes to tell his wives that, that, that they, are, they should go back. And just the way that this is that this is worded, it won't sound exactly like your um, ESV or New American Standard or King James, but uh, it, it's Genesis 31, verse 5, and it says this, And he said to them, so this is, this is Jacob talking to Rachel and Leah, I see that the face of your father is not with me, or not toward me, either one, not with me, as before. But the God of my Father, he has been with me. So, Jacob realizes that through these 20 years, he doesn't realize that he's been living it, but he states it so simply doesn't matter about the father-in-law, right? Because the God of his father has been with him 
and would continue to be with him uh, throughout. And for me, that was, you know, that was a, wow, that's, a, that's a, like an aha moment for me. From you, probably not. For you, probably not. But I shared it at, at Bible study on, on Thursday, and it was nobody else's aha moment. <laughs> nobody else said, aha, now, now, I, now I get it. Um, so things like that happen, though, when we um, read God's word, when we meet with him in his word, when, when we let him speak to us through uh, his word. So we are uh, in the middle of talking about, uh, last week, garments for priests, and this week, uh, a ceremony to install them as priests. Uh, and so just as so you remember what we dealt with last week, you'll remember that Aaron was set to be the first high priest, his, and his clothes were, this was about making clothes for him last week, and they would be different from anybody else's clothes. But, but here's what, you'll remember these, these verses. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beautiful. So those clothes were beautiful. They were impressive they were impressive not only to be viewed by people, but they were meant to serve a purpose as Aaron approaches God, as he presents himself and presents the offerings to God. So um, remember that this is also what was part of that clothing. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So these clothes that he was wearing were, were important not only for the people to see, but for God to see. And we know now that, that, that Christ has taken his place at the right hand of God in the true tabernacle. And he is there to intercede for uh, so this will be continuing then. Chapter 29 is a continuation of, of uh, this section of the tabernacle and also a continuation dealing with the priests. We're moving now from the clothes that the priest was wearing, the priests would wear to something where the, the ESV calls, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll, you'll see it says the consecration of the priests. So consecration is somewhat like the term sanctification in that it's based on the word for holy, and it means something like to, to make holy or to set apart. This ceremony that's, that's going to be um, in, described in this chapter is also called an ordination, which is a different word, but it, it means something like to make adequate for the purpose, or recognize that a person is adequate for the purpose, uh, and to charge them with with doing certain things. So, uh, we uh, ESV again had just it, the whole chapter is just called the consecration for the priests, which is really, really, really hard to go through forty six verses like that. I'll, I'll break it down into three sections. You'll, if you read commentators, you'd see that they don't agree on where these breaks are. Some of them are clear, easy to see, but especially um, at, toward the end, it's not quite as easy. Uh, but uh, preparation for consecration. So 
The next one is the consecration offerings. And the next one is the regular daily offerings. So that's what this chapter is about. Uh, it's about this primarily about, for the first three-fourths of it, uh, more than three-fourths of it, is about consecration of the priests. And because it's 46 verses, um, we'll do it a little bit, I'll, I'll comment a little bit less as we go through in each section. Start it off with a basically an introduction. Read through the verses with a minimal with minimal interruption, give a summary of it at the end, and then spend most of the time on the regular uh, daily offerings. But you can see this chapter is much about the organized practice of religion. So I would say, though, that the, the key verses in this chapter are the, come at the very end. And it says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. So these verses, if they, if they seem familiar, it's that God repeats things like this quite regularly. So it's easy to kind of read over them at the end of this chapter because, because they don't seem very, they seem kind of lofty, lofty language, right? That not really tangible. There's nothing really there that you can uh, sink your teeth into. So, but what, what does this all mean? What do these verses mean? Do they mean that, that God is, God says, they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. Does that mean anything practical? Does that mean anything practical to us? So we'll talk about those as we get toward the end. Uh, but let's go to the first section, which is preparation for consecration. So this is, again, as I mentioned, mostly about that, this, this chapter. Verses 1 through 9 uh, that we're going to go to first bring, are a good summary of what you need for the ceremony and what preparations that you have to make. So let's, let's begin. Like I said, so this is about preparation for this ceremony that's coming to consecrate or to set apart the priests, uh, and mainly the high priest, which would be Aaron. So this is about what you need, the first nine verses. Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and you shall make them of fine flour, and you shall put them in one basket, and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. Pretty simple so far. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, and put on Aaron the coat, 
and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban. So these are the clothes from last week. Most of them are listed, not quite all of them. And you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with the sashes and bind caps on them. So these are the clothes for the, for the other priests as well. So you can see it's pretty clear what we need for this ceremony. We need the priests themselves girded as they should be in their ceremonial clothes. We need a bull and two rams. We need a basket of different kinds of unleavened bread. And then we need to have Aaron uh, anointed ahead of time. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And so that's where those first nine go. So now we're going to get into what is this, what are, what is this ceremony about? So there are consecration offerings in these sections. There are, we're going to subdivide this because it's, you know, 28 verses long and it really breaks down really easily. You know that we need a bull and we need two rams. And so we'll break it down like that. We'll, what we're going to do with the bull, what we're going to do with the first ram, and what we're going to do with the second ram. Okay? So, the, the bull. So this is the, just the first five verses of this section. So the bull is a sin offering. Or you could say a purification offering. So uh, Hamilton uh, points out that there are really... Two kinds of offering that use the same word, sin or purification. One deals with sin for sure. There's no doubt about it. It talks about being forgiven for sins, etc. Another one is the term that we, that we often wonder about. It's called, probably translated in your Bible, sin offering like when a woman gives birth. Well, that's really a purification offering, right? Um, so... So he makes a distinction between those two things, and he thinks the first one is a purification offering. Uh, I'm not, not so sure, um, but, but let's, let's read through these five verses. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of of the bull. So this symbolizes a couple of things. One is that the that the priests, Aaron and his sons, are identifying with the bull. And they are ceremonially, symbolically uh, transferring their sin to the bull. That's that's the idea here. Their sin and their imperfections to the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. So this is one of those places where I'm just going to make a few comments 
um, and not just read through it. So, so it starts out, you shall kill the bull before the Lord. This is a, this is a term that is often translated slaughter. It, in its ceremonial sense, it means to, to kill the animal in a certain way by cutting its throat, to, to drain out as much blood as possible. Um, and so with that blood, one of the things that happens is that uh, Moses is to put the blood on the horns of the altar, right? to touch them, touch it on the horns of the altar, symbolizing most likely purifying the altar. God will talk about purifying the altar later. And the rest of it is to pour out the blood at the base of the altar. So sin offerings, purification offerings, are the only kind of offerings that that happens, where you pour out the blood at the base of the altar. And you shall take all of the fat that covers the entrails, basically the intestines, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, and burn them on the altar. So notice that this is not what's called a whole burnt offering. We're just burning part of the bull on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering or a purification offering. So having been symbolically purified then, the priests... Aaron and his sons, they're ready to move on to the next part of the ceremony. And the next part of the ceremony is the first ram. Now, the first ram will probably be more like what we think about as an offering, as a, as a sacrifice, because this is what's called a whole burnt offering. In other words, the whole animal is going to be burned on the altar, and it's, it's symbolic also. So what is it symbolizing? Well, it's symbolizing the wholehearted devotion of the priests to God. That's what they are to do. This is a ceremony about the priests. So first, purify them with the bull. Then this symbolizes a wholehearted devotion to Yahweh. Then you shall take one of the rams... And Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall slaughter the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Again, laying on the hands, symbolizing identifying um, with the ram. But notice that the blood is not poured out at the base of the offering. Something different happens with it. It's splattered on its sides. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, probably quarter it, and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to Yahweh. It is a pleasing aroma, which, which signifies God accepting this sacrifice. A food offering is the way the, the ESV puts it. Uh, most of our translations say an offering made by fire or something like that. The word appears to be based on the word for fire. Um, so uh, it is, anyway, it is a different kind of offering from the sin offering. So now we have these two offerings so far. We have the sin offering and we have the whole burnt offering, the devotion offering 
that the priests are devote them to devote themselves fully to the Lord. And then we have the second ram next. So, the second ram is called, uh, in the text, the ram of ordination. Uh, it is very much like some other kind of offerings that you will see in Scripture. It is, in fact, it will say later in this section that it is a... Um, peace or a well-being offering. Those words, those are both based on the word shalom, okay, for peace or for well-being. Uh, but there are other kinds of peace offerings or uh, well-being offerings. This one is specifically for the priests, for this ceremony of the priests. And so this is um, probably the longest section of these of these three. Um, it is the longest section of these three, so let's just talk about what happens here. Then you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slaughter the ram, and take part of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs, and on their on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. So, so many many people have noticed this. It's definitely symbolic of something, right? So, so most people will say something like this: This is you're putting it on the ear. Because that's where we're symbolizing that we're to listen for the word of God. We're to listen to what God says. We're putting it on the hands, on the thumb of the right hand, so that we do what God says. And as you know, walking is a, is a symbolic way of saying the way that you live your life. And so we put it on the toe of the right foot so that we live our lives according to God's command, that we are an example. The priests are an example for uh, what, they are, what they are to be as a, as a mediator for the people of Israel. So living out the word of God, that's, that's, that's not a certain thing, but very, very, very many commentators draw that, that symbolic meaning from that. Then you shall take... Part of the blood that is on the altar and the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his sons and on his sons and his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy or become holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram. And the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the river, liver, excuse me, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. Okay, so it's different from other kinds of offerings like this. 
Uh, it's not going to be, as you can see here, a whole burnt offering. They're not going to burn the whole ram. Parts of it, most of it, will be burned, but, but not all of it. Uh, again, so it's similar to other offerings, but is only for this purpose. And one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. So three different kinds of bread, all unleavened, um, that are been in this basket. And you shall put all of these into the palms of Aaron and into the palms of his sons. So let's just talk about that for a minute. So, so in, in the way that, a literal way to say ordination in Hebrew is fill the hands. So, so give them the tasks that they are to do, basically. So fill the hands. That's the word for that gets translated, translated um, ordination in your Bible or the words that it get translated at. So in a, in a real symbolically, literal symbolic way, that's what they're doing here. They're putting this stuff in the hands of the priests. That is to tell them that, that they are to symbolize that they are given things to do. And that they have duties to do. And that they're to fulfill those duties. So we have ordination ceremonies for pastors now. They're, they're not like this. We don't do this. right? So it's not the same thing. But it is. It is this. It's a recognition that the, that the people are called by God to serve in that purpose. And that they have, it, they have things that they are supposed to do. Like shepherd the flock of people. Well, the priests had things that they were supposed to do that were part of their duties. Um, and so that is, that is what this symbolizes. And then it says this, And wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. So we're going to, you might wonder what that is, but we're going to talk about that in a couple of verses here. So um, then you shall take them, from their hands, and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before Yahweh. It is a food offering or an offering by fire to Yahweh. And you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before Yahweh, and it shall be your Portion. Now, there are a few of uh, English translations that translate this as, instead of a wave offering, as an elevation offering. Uh, and the thought is, so, so these, these things haven't been done for 1,950 years. Because uh, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, that was the end of sacrifices, right? And so nobody knows, nobody's got a, a video of this. Um, and so people actually disagree quite a bit, um, not like I'm mad at you disagree, but, but of, of what this looks like. Some think, think it means to like just elevate, just lift it up, and it, it doesn't really waving. Others, you would wi- lift it up, then move it back and forth, 
move it all around, and then, and then lay it back down. Um, it is, it's like, and it's called, it's, it's like a fellowship offering. It's, it's another kind of offering that has this kind of thing. Um, and a fellowship offering includes a meal afterwards. So we, we have the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination uh, that is to be waved. Um, a guy named Tremper Longman, I think, has uh, really good thoughts on this. He said, no, that isn't, that isn't what happens. What happens is this, and it fits in what is, what, it's a symbolic thing, that it means you, you elevate it, and then you wave it forward and back, symbolizing that this is something that has been given to God, this, this sacrifice has, and a portion of it has been given back to the priests for their use. They are to draw their, this is how the priests, um, this is, the priests are to participate in the meals of the sacrifices. So the priests are to eat this part of the sacrifice. So, you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before Yahweh, and it shall be your portion. So in this case, Moses' portion, because Moses is also a, uh, recognized as a priest. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion. So the, the priest got the, the breast and the right thigh. And that, that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to Yahweh. So you can see how that fits in with uh, what uh, Long Longman said that you, that this is something. It's it's the people giving the offering to God, and then the priests actually draw from that offering as part of um, earning their their keep from from their service. The holy garments of Aaron shall be on, shall be for his sons after him. In other words, the chief, um, the high priest. Um, will pass it on, and they shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. So this is going to tell us that this, this ceremony is to last seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. It means certainly means inside the tabernacle courtyard somewhere. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, or, or at the entrance or near the entrance of the tent of meeting. So near the tabernacle. And they shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination um, some kind of one of the ways you can understand is it is a covering and consecration make holy, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. So the outsider means anybody that's not a priest can't eat any of this 
offering because they're holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. And thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons. Notice that's what it started off. You will do this to Aaron and his sons, right? So this you shall do to Aaron and his sons. According to all that I have commanded you, through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for an atonement. For atonement, You shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. So purifying, putting the blood on the horns of the altar, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So what, is, what does that mean? Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Well, um, it, it means that whatever you put on the altar is going to be set apart, is going to be holy. Actually referenced um, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 23. You'll remember it when we, when we start talking about it. Um, 23, beginning in verse 16. When Jesus is speaking to... Um, about the Pharisees, about them swearing falsely. And he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar... It is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes it sacred, that makes the gift sacred. The altar makes the gift sacred. It's touched, it's touched on the altar, the sacrifices that we make. And so, this is the way Jesus concludes that. So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Because it's the altar that makes things holy. So, if you swear by that, that's what you do. So, that concludes um, the two sections of this, really, that are about the um, ordination ceremony. So, the priests have been ordained. So, they've been ordained to do something. So what are they supposed to do? Well, the first thing that, that God tells Moses to do about after this consecration ceremony uh, begins in the next verse. The regular daily offerings or the continuous daily offering. So most of the, the translations break this, this last section up. 38 to 46 into, into more than one section. ESV doesn't, to their credit. They, they follow here the way the Hebrew Bible makes it, so it doesn't, because this last section contains the, what we started with about, I will dwell among the people of Israel, etc. 
Um, and so some people break that off as some kind of a summary, but the Hebrew Bible doesn't do it. ESV doesn't even put a paragraph break there, which, it, which is really good. And so we'll read through it, um, all the way through it with very few comments, and then, and then we'll talk about, the Latin, talk about it towards the end. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. So this is a regular daily offering. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly, one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at night. So this is at twilight. This is nothing to do with the consecration or ordination sacrifices. This is something completely different. This is something that is done every morning, every twilight, every day, rain or shine, every month, every year, two lambs being offered. With the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for drink offering. And the other ram you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it, offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering or offering by fire to Yahweh. And it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before Yahweh, where I will meet with you, plural, to speak with you there, singular. And there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priest. So just one note there. Notice that it's actually God that consecrates them. The ceremonial part, the, the blood doesn't actually do that. Right? It's actually God who does it. I will consecrate you. I will set you apart. Uh, not these sacrifices. They're symbolic of that action, but they aren't what actually, they aren't the real thing. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. So again, it's easy to just read right over these verses, Um, especially after taking all that time and reading about sacrifices. It's just kind of boilerplate stuff. This is stuff that we have... Put on that, that God says at the end of speeches that he gives to uh, the people of Israel. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. Yep, I know that, right? Um, so did you ever think about this? Why does God tell them that here? after he gives them the instructions for the daily sacrifices. They certainly knew, right? They they had been in slavery. They had just been in slavery, not a year ago probably. A few months before this, they were in slavery. They were the last generation of slaves for 400 years. So they knew the horror, they lived the horror stories in Egypt. They saw the plagues that God 
put on Egypt to get them out. They saw God. They, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. That God did that. They saw all this stuff not long ago. They, they drank water that had been bitter and made sweet. They were eating manna. So, they knew, right? They knew that God had brought them out of Egypt. So why does he say, and they shall know, beginning of verse 46, that I am Yahweh their God? They shall know. Well, let's, let's look up a couple, about three verses ahead there again, or back, I mean, toward uh, verse 42. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the tent of meeting before Yahweh. So God, God, why does God have them do this year after year and day after day? Wouldn't that get a little bit repetitious? So, so got a text from Sue asking about, uh, Sue Norberg asking about, how many, how many people in the Exodus? So, you know, best guesses are 3 million, somewhere around 3 million. Some would say 2 million, but, but more likely 3 million with the number of men that are being counted there. About 3 million. So put yourself in one of their shoes. Or not very many people can get close to the, the tabernacle, but in their, in their sandals then. So put yourself in there and... And you say to one of your kids, hey, let's go watch tomorrow. Let's go watch the morning sacrifice. And the son responds, well, that's kind of early. Um, and besides, it's, they just do the same thing over and over again. Why didn't we just go? We were just there. Well, we, we haven't been there for a while. Well, I don't really get much out of this. And so we might think, on the other hand, looking at it differently, wow, that's amazing. God says right here that he is going to meet with the people of Israel there. So Pastor Terry this morning you know, mentioned that, that we usually think of meeting God like when we die. And then he, then he pointed out quite correctly, God is the God of the living, as Jesus says. So wouldn't it be great if God would meet with us like that? But, you know, I'm guessing that most of these days this seemed pretty uneventful for them. That there was nothing visibly happening uh, except for the sacrifices, more like yeah, son, I think you're right. I don't really get much out of it either. Uh, maybe we should just come back once in a while. Still, it seems pretty amazing to me. But the, sac- but the tabernacle's gone. As I mentioned, it's been gone for almost 2,000 years. The sacrifices are go- gone, and that's because God put an end to them. Because as we know... Priests were offering up daily sacrifices day after day, bulls and goats that could never take away sins, but Christ has done that. And so this, these 
sacrifices are unnecessary, right? Because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. So, so where do we meet with God now? Wouldn't it be great if we could meet with him? Wouldn't it be great if he would come and meet with, with his people? And then we have promises like wherever two or three of you gather together, I'm with you. And we know that, that really the gathering is usually larger than that with Christians. We're supposed to meet in a place like this. But we might get the same response. Well, that's kind of boring. I don't really get much out of it. And why in the world do we schedule church when there are soccer games? Well, I was speaking of this quote, a guy named Hamilton, and I don't, once in a while I quote from him, but I just thought this was extremely relevant to this discussion. Here's what he says regarding these verses. But it is in these ordinary, repetitious, perfunctory ministries that God promises to meet with his people. They are the hallowed and hallowing moments. That means they are the holy and sanctifying moments. They provide participants to reflect on where they came from and who is responsible for such redemption. So most of the time it doesn't seem like much is happening there. And then, you know, like, Aha. Probably doesn't happen all the time. Or it never is aha. It just changes your way of thinking by day after day. In our case, week after week, becoming here. And then you understand what something like the presence of God means. You, you can understand, we understand this, that God's going to meet with his people there. He meets with us here. And then you can put together, because we've been here. Well, God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He does what he delights in. He delights with meeting with his people. That's what God likes to do. God likes to be here. So this week, um, I, I know I've mentioned before that I, I, I'm on Twitter because guys like Albert Moeller and, and John Piper are on there and I read things. I came across this and I just... It was one of those aha moments. H.B. Charles, um, here, here's what he put on Twitter. I, was, I, I remembered it minus one word from scratch the first time I heard it, but this is, this is what he actually wrote. Christ is the head of the church, and the church is the body of Christ. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. He went on in the article, as you could click on it and get the article, and it says something like this. I love Jesus Christ, and I love what Jesus loves. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Of course, that's Ephesians 5, 25. So the, the, the little clip there you clicked on, he had an article called this. Assembly Required. Cute little title. 
25 reasons to regularly participate in public and corporate worship. And several of them come from from Hebrews 10. Um, And we've been taking some of our material from Hebrews 10, but they come from this passage uh, in Hebrews 10, beginning in, in verse 23. Now let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, that's the chapter where the author of Hebrews talks about the priest. Daily sacrifices, day after day after day. Right? That's, that's the chapter. That's the chapter, one of the chapters we've been referring to. So here are two of the things that he, that he mentioned. Number 23. Attending public and corporate worship renews and strengthens us for the days ahead. So that's what happens. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, even when it doesn't seem like anything is happening. Number 24, corporate worship reinforces the truth that worship is not about getting from God. I don't get much out of that, right? Fundamentally, Christian worship is about giving to God. Christ is the head of the church. And the church is the body of Christ. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. So take encouragement from that for being here, right? But also take it as a charge for us to to spread that to people who we know are living out there who think they have a high view of Christ. But they don't have a very high view of the church. Let's close in prayer. And we will sing our final hymn. Father, we thank you that, uh, that you have given us your words, your mind. That you meet with us here. That you meet with us in your word, that you speak to us through your word. We thank you for this fellowship of believers that gather here so faithfully every Sunday night and, and Sunday morning, and we, we pray that we would all love Christ and love the church the way Christ loved the church. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.